I'd invite you to turn back with me to Matthew chapter 18 as we return to the parable of the unforgiving slave. It was two and a half months ago that I was asked to fill this pulpit because our pastor wasn't feeling well. And uh, on that day, I preached a sermon on the first half of this parable, turning to this unique passage to be reminded of an essential maxim for the Christian life, Uh, namely, that forgiven people forgive, that those who are forgiven are those who are forgiving. And this morning, I want to revisit that text and preach through the second half of the parable. And by way of reminder, the passage begins with Peter asking Jesus how often he has to forgive a brother who sins against him and yet comes to him repenting and seeking forgiveness. And rather than wait for a response, Peter immediately offers his own. He says, up to seven times. He doubles the rabbinic tradition of three and then adds one for good measure. And though he thinks he's being very magnanimous, Jesus responds in verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. And we spoke about how Jesus is not intending to say that 490 is the limit, but, you know, you can unleash vengeance on 491. It's hyperbole that stands for an uncountable number. Jesus' point is that for His followers, forgiveness doesn't have a limit because, as we see in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep score. You could count to 490, but really every, every sin is back at one. No count is kept. Love bears and believes and hopes and endures all things, and so love forgives. In fact, in Luke 17, 3 and 4, Jesus says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. You see, not just seven times, but if it was seven times a day, we are to forgive. And so, the principle that must take root in the soil of every Christian's heart is that where there is repentance, there is forgiveness. It simply cannot be that a brother or sister in Christ sincerely seeks our forgiveness and we refuse to grant it. No, we are to be an extravagantly forgiving people, a 70 times 7 people, a 7 times a day people. Why? Because we are an extravagantly forgiven people. Because that is the kind of forgiveness that God in Christ has lavished upon us. And that's why we read in Ephesians 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. It's why we read in Colossians 3.13, We are to be bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also must you. In other words, forgiven people forgive. And this is nowhere more vividly illustrated than in the parable that Jesus tells in verses 23 to 35. The first half of the parable, verses 23 to 27, which we looked at several months ago, is intended to be a heart-ravishing drama of God's bottomless grace in forgiving our sins. And so my goal in that first sermon was for us to be freshly affected by the weight of our own sin, 
by the sheer magnitude of the incalculable debt that we owe to God for the offenses that we have committed against His holiness, by the fact that we have no ability to pay that debt of ourselves, and therefore we lie open to the deserved condemnation of the debtor's prison of eternal hell. And then to be ravished by the scandalous mercy, by the free grace and boundless compassion of the forgiveness we have received from God through Christ. How vulnerable we had been to the merciless justice of God's holy law. And then, based on no work of our own, but solely through an empty-handed plea for mercy, our great God and King compassionately forgave our debt of infinite punishment. And He did it all justly by demanding that every last cent would be paid by our great substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom payment for many. How hopelessly indebted we were and how freely we are forgiven. We ought to sing with the prophet Micah, who closes his prophecy in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19 with these words, Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. But as we come to the second half of the parable, in verses 28 to 35, we find that Jesus is going to apply that great gospel of free and compassionate forgiveness to the conscience and to the practice of those who profess to have received that forgiveness. He is teaching His disciples to compare the mountain of our own sin against God, which has been freely forgiven, to the molehills of the offenses that even our fellow Christians commit against us. And in the light of that contrast, He calls us to bend out the very mercy of forgiveness that we have received to our brothers and sisters. And that really is the whole ethic of the Christian life. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, Philippians 1.27. Ask yourself, how does God in Christ treat me in spite of my sin? And then, not in just bare imitation, but in the strength of grace, in the same way, give that grace to others. But he does that by a negative example. And we'll work through the second half of this parable in five scenes. The first is the slave's sinful reaction. The slave's sinful reaction. And we see this in verses 28 to 30. After being freely forgiven the incalculable debt of 10,000 talents, Jesus says in verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Then he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, and he went and threw him in prison 
until he should pay back what was owed. You see how masterfully Jesus tells this story when you consider the sharp contrasts between the way the king dealt with the slave and the way this slave deals with his fellow slave. The first contrast is revealed in that very phrase. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves. That's a phrase repeated throughout this second half. Verse 28, 29, 31, 33. Jesus is emphasizing the equal station between the forgiven slave and the man who is indebted to him. You see, he, this man had just been forgiven by his king, by his master, one who has authority over him and is his superior. And now he is refusing to forgive a fellow slave, a brother, one who is his equal in station and authority. So also we have been forgiven by God Almighty, the Lord of heaven and earth, the sovereign of the universe. Now, can we refuse to show grace that we have been shown by one infinitely superior to us? Can we refuse to show that grace to our fellow mortals with whom we stand on an equal footing before our judge? Then a second contrast is the main one, who owed him a hundred denarii. And a denarius was a a day's wages for a common laborer. We see that in Matthew chapter 20, verse 2. And so a hundred denarii is 100 days wages, a laborer's income for about three and a half months, which is not an insignificant sum. If you make an annual salary of $75,000 a year, a hundred days wages is just over $20,000. That's not nothing. This man owed his fellow slave a sizable amount of money. There really was a debt. And understanding the point of the analogy, we learn from this that fellow believers' sins against us are not insignificant. They're not nothing. You say, but he sinned against me. It hurt. He treated me like I was nothing. Well, but she embarrassed me. She made a fool out of me. He was wrong. Now, yes, it is granted that there was a real offense committed against you. Well, then righteousness demands that he pay back what he owes into the debtor's prison with him. But no, see, the ground of your forgiveness of others is not that the sin committed against you is insignificant. The ground of your forgiveness of others is God's forgiveness of you. Is that how God dealt with you? Well, strict justice requires that no substitution be made, no Savior be sent, no forgiveness be granted into hell with you until you have paid the last cent. No. Verse 27, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave the debt. And so the point is not that there's no real sin against you or that it's just so minor that justice demands you don't insist on it. $20,000 is not nothing. But the point is $20,000 is minuscule in comparison to $11.5 billion, which is the equivalent of 10,000 talents at the same rate. 20000 
is 0.0000000174% of 11.5 billion. This slave was insisting upon being repaid a debt that was one six hundred thousandth of the debt that he was just forgiven. I mean, it is just absolutely absurd. And yet that is how it looks to God. Absurd. When we who have been released from the infinite torments of hell insist upon our own rights for what is granted sin against us, but which cannot compare to the infinite offense of our own sins against God. Third contrast appears next. He seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. This man's king had a right to treat the slave with that kind of force. He was his superior. It was a huge debt. And verse 24 says he was just brought, not seized, not choked, just brought. And, this, and yet this man leaves the presence of his king forgiven and goes out and finds, the text says, his fellow slave who owes him money. He doesn't leave the king bowed to the dust weeping in gratitude over the unfathomable mercy that he's just been shown, over this new lease on life he's just been granted. No, his attitude seems to be, well, got out of that one. See how much more I can milk out of this day. You owe me money, don't you? And it's just a corrupt, wretched disposition. And then he goes and grabs his brother by the neck and starts choking him and demands the the very justice that he had just been spared from. Really, a fraction of the very justice that he had just been spared from. And then amidst an abundance of contrasts, verse 29 is a point of comparison, a point of similarity. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. Now, does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the forgiven slave did and said in verse 26. It's a virtually identical request. And the point is, this fellow slave's plea for forgiveness ought to have reminded him of his own petition for mercy from the king along with how freely and readily his king had forgiven him. And as a result of remembering how he himself was just in that same position and received mercy, he should have shown mercy to his fellow slave. That also applies to us. Anytime you hear the words, will you please forgive me, you ought to hear your own voice. You ought to say, hmm, That question sounds familiar. Oh, yes, that was from this morning when I asked the thrice holy God of the universe for forgiveness for the 20 millionth time and received the unfathomable grace of His unhesitating forgiveness for Christ's sake. Will I forgive you? Of course I will. See, that's, that's just how grace talks. That's how a heart that has been regenerated by the grace of the gospel reasons. Will you forgive me? That's my line. What a delight it is for me to be on the other side of that question. And what a delight it is for me to imitate my gracious God and Father for the sake of Christ and bend out the grace that I've been shown 
and joyfully grant you my forgiveness just as you've asked. But that's not what happened in the parable. Verse 30 says, This slave was unwilling to forgive. Imperfect tense, continued ongoing disposition of unwillingness and unforgiveness. One commentator said his will was set against clemency. That marks a fourth contrast. When his king had heard his plea for mercy, the king's heart was filled with compassion. When he heard his brother's plea for mercy, his heart was hardened with unwillingness. And then fifth, instead of releasing and forgiving him as his king had done, he threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. It's only right. It's only fair. It's only just. He sinned against me, and I will not compromise righteousness. You wouldn't have me compromise justice, would you? Be honest with yourselves. Does that sound familiar at all? The question is, if God treated you that way, where would you be? Here is a slave whose king forgave him a debt equivalent to 165,000 years' wages, now with his heart hardened, seizing and choking and casting into prison a fellow slave who owed him the equivalent of 100 days' wages. Such a display of blatant hypocrisy, of arrogant mercilessness in response to being shown mercy ought to turn your stomach But don't get self-righteous. Jesus tells us this parable to look us in the eye and tell us, you are that unforgiving slave. When, as those who profess to be forgiven by God are king of an infinite debt, you turn around and insist on your own rights and on strict justice and refuse to forgive a sin against yourselves that could only be described as minuscule by comparison to your sin against God. Such is the slave's sinful reaction. Brings us, secondly, to the fellow slave's sorrowful report. The fellow slave's sorrowful report, verse 31. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. The other slaves of the king witnessed this one slave's mercilessness and mistreatment of his fellow slave, and the text says they were deeply grieved. That's the same phrase that's used of the disciples in Matthew 17, 23, when Jesus tells them he'll be killed by the Jews. It's the same phrase used to describe the disciples' reaction in Matthew 26, 22 at the Last Supper, when Jesus tells them that one of them would betray him. This behavior is so far out of accord with the principles of Christianity that it evokes a grief described in terms which elsewhere only describe the response to the betrayal and murder of Jesus Himself. That's how grieving witnessing unforgiveness is to true servants of the King. And so they go and they tell their King, not out of spite, not out of, uh, you know, trying to vengeance for this unmerciful slave, but out of sincere sorrow for the mistreatment of the minor debtor. And what's that a picture of? What's that tell us? 
that when we witness such unforgiveness, we, we go to our King. We pray to God on behalf of the one mistreated. And the earnest cries of the Lord's people are not lost on Him. We learn that all the way back in Exodus 2, don't we, where in verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 23 of Exodus, the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage in Egypt, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. In verse 24, so God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant, and before long the Egyptian army was drowned in the Red Sea. You see, our King will be attentive to the cries of His servants for those who are suffering unjustly. King in the parable certainly was. That leads us to a third scene, the sinful response, the sorrowful report. Now, number three, the king's stern rebuke. The king's stern rebuke, verses 32 and 33. Then, summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? What's God's estimation of those who profess to be recipients of His forgiveness, yet who refuse to extend forgiveness to others who sincerely seek it? What is it? Look at the text. You wicked slave. Your hard-hearted cruelty to your fellow Christians demonstrates that my goodness has made no impression on your soul demonstrates that you have no appreciation whatsoever of what it meant to be forgiven of all that debt. And notice the way he reasons. Should you not have had mercy on him the way I had mercy on you? And that's not really a forceful enough translation of the original. Literally, it's, was it not necessary also for you to have mercy as I had mercy on you? Was it not necessary? You see, there is a solemn moral obligation upon the recipients of grace to extend the grace they have been shown to others. We who have been saved by the gospel are commanded again to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's why forgive as you have been forgiven. When we fail to have mercy as we've been shown mercy, when we fail to forgive as we have been forgiven, we are living in a hopeless incongruity with the gospel. We are walking contradictions. When we refuse forgiveness, when we nurse bitterness, when we cherish an unforgiving spirit, we are just as much out of step with the gospel as the professing Christian who lies, who uses foul language, who gets drunk who fornicates, who commits adultery. And that ought to be unthinkable to us. We we think about some of those sins and you say, "I I could never imagine myself getting there. It ought to be as unthinkable because it is as out of step with the gospel to refuse forgiveness for those who repent. King says, wasn't it necessary for you to have mercy on him the way I had mercy on you? And in what way is that? In what way has the king expressed his mercy of forgiveness? Well, he does it immediately. He doesn't make you wait for it. Go sit in the corner. I'll let you know when you can come out. 
He does it freely. He demands no acts of penance, no ritual cleansing of self-atonement, no, nothing but the confession and genuine repentance of the one who owns his sin. He does it eagerly. Psalm 86, 5, For you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive. He does it completely. Completely. He doesn't resurrect your sins and throw them in your face. When they are forgiven, they're gone forever. And I can't help but going to several passages. Psalm 103, 12, we read in the prayer earlier, He's removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah 38, 17, Hezekiah says to God, You have cast all my sins behind your back. He says, before when my sins clung to me, they were, as it were, before God's very face, so that whenever I saw any communion with him, there was a barricade between us. But now, he, because he has forgiven me, he has taken those sins and put them behind his back so that he can look upon me with favor and so that I can look upon him in peace. Beautiful. Isaiah 43, 25, Yahweh says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out or blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It's as if our sins are pictured as recorded in a book, and God comes along with divine whiteout, and He starts blotting out every record of our sins with the result that He, what? Remembers them no more, which does not mean that omniscience forgets. It means that he makes a commitment of his will to refuse to call them to mind in his dealings with us. They no longer have any effect on the relationship between him and us. They're buried in the depths of the sea, as we read in Micah 7. They're gone forever. They're at the bottom of the ocean. And in Jeremiah 50, 20, such a precious passage, he says, God says, search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. And for the sins of Judah, but they will not be found. Why? For I will pardon. I will forgive those whom I leave as a remnant. You hear that? Search may be made for your sin, believer, but there will be no sins to be found. They're behind his back, out of his mind, in the depths of the sea, nailed to the cross. And not only does He forgive immediately, freely, eagerly, completely, He also forgives unboundedly, without limit, 70 times 7. As often as He is asked, God forgives you so long as Christ's blood is powerful and precious to Him. And if Almighty God, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil, who is justly repulsed at all unrighteousness, who is the God of all holiness, if He can put away my sin for the sake of Christ, how can I, as a creature of the dust, who should be suffering in the torments of hell for the years I've lived already, refuse to put away the sins of those who seek my forgiveness? How can it be? Especially when it's a fellow believer, which is what the context is here. When somebody 
of the family, if God comes and seeks your forgiveness, you reason with yourself. The God of infinite holiness can bury this person's sins in the depths of the sea and remember it no more because the precious blood of His Son has satisfied justice in in their case. But my standard of righteousness is higher than God's. I am of such exalted dignity that when I am sinned against, the blood of the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, is insufficient to satisfy the just demands of my wounded honor. And so, no, I refuse to forgive the sins that Christ died for. I refuse to forgive the sin that holy God has forgiven. It's absolute lunacy, spiritual madness. And though few of you would dare give voice to those thoughts, even in the quietness of your own heart, nevertheless, that is the infernal reasoning that stands at the bottom of every hesitation to forgive your brother, your penitent brother, from the heart. We must forgive as we have been forgiven when our fellow believers, our husbands and wives, our mothers and fathers, our sons and daughters, seek our forgiveness, it is necessary for us to forgive them immediately, freely, eagerly, completely, and unboundedly, to cast their sins behind our backs, to wipe them out of our record books, and to refuse to remember them. It is, dear people, to make a decisive commitment of the will to refuse to call those sins we say we have forgiven to mind, to refuse to allow them to be a barrier to a restored relationship. They are forgotten. They are put away. They are done with at the bottom of the ocean, never to be brought to bear in our dealings with one another again. They are that or we have not forgiven as God has forgiven us. But the king doesn't just rebuke the slave. We find in verse 34 the situation is much more dire than that. Scene number four, the king's severe revocation. The king's severe revocation. And his Lord, moved with anger handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. In verse 27, this king was moved with compassion and forgave. Now he's moved with anger, and he comes to punish. And he reinstates the debt that the man owed. He revokes the very pardon that he had issued in verse 27, and he reinstates the punishment that he ordered in verse 25. He throws the slave into the very debtor's prison that he deserved all along. Not, as R.C. Sproul wisely observed, for mismanaging the king's money, but for mismanaging the king's mercy. And Jesus pictures this debtor's prison as especially horrific by commanding that the slave be handed over to the torturers. Basanistes. This is the same word that's used of the centurion's servant in Matthew 8, 6, where the centurion tells Jesus that his servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Chapter 14, verse 24, it speaks of a boat being battered by the waves. And again in chapter 8, verse 29, 
the words used to describe Jesus' torment of the demons in the lake of fire. Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? This is Jesus' way of speaking about hell, just as He was in verse 25. If forgiven people forgive, unforgiving people demonstrate that they have not been forgiven. And that leads to a final scene. Number five, the Lord's startling revelation. The Lord's startling revelation. My heavenly Father, verse 35, will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that if you are not a forgiving man or woman, you will not be a forgiven man or woman. He's saying none other than what He said as He taught His disciples to pray in Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, what if we haven't forgiven our debtors? Well, then God won't forgive you. Say, hey, well, wait a minute, the text doesn't say that. Sure it does. Two verses later, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. You see, your, fellow, your forgiveness of your fellow believers who repent and seek your forgiveness is a matter of heaven and hell. It takes the temperature of your heart. You say, how can that possibly be? Are you saying that Jesus is making our granting other people forgiveness a condition of our salvation? I mean, how is that not some sort of salvation by works? We believe in justification by faith alone, not justification by forgiving alone. And that's a good question. But the answer is, Jesus understands sola fide better than you do. And He's not saying that we're saved by our forgiveness. He's saying that if there does not dwell within you a heart, a cheerful disposition of gracious, magnanimous eagerness to forgive, if your heart is untouched by the grace you've been shown in for God's forgiveness of your incalculable debt of sin through the sacrifice of Christ, such, you, such that you long to bend out such forgiving mercy to anyone who sincerely seeks it, then you give evidence that your heart hasn't been touched by that grace, that you never have been forgiven, that you are not now and never have been a believer in Jesus. Because those who have been genuinely saved by the gospel have been recreated by that gospel. They have been given the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of them and to cause them to walk in the way of that gospel, in step with that gospel. They've been given a new heart. And so they delight to imitate their gracious Heavenly Father in extending to others some measure of the grace that they have been shown. Matthew 5-7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What is the implication? Cursed are the unmerciful, for they shall not receive mercy. Or Matthew 
Verse 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. And here is a verse that ought to strike every last one of us to the depths of our conscience. You who cherish an unforgiving spirit, who fudge on this biblical command to forgive your penitent brother or sister, will you test your actions at the bar of this verse? Will you, will you test your conscience with this principle and say, Lord, will you forgive me in precisely the same way that I am prepared to forgive others? Lord, will you deal with me in my communion with you in precisely the way that I have dealt with my husband, with my wife, with my mother or father? Will you dare apply that verse to your practice? Because I can barely stand that thought. I want to say, Lord, please don't treat me the way I have treated others. I'm ashamed to say it, but please use a more merciful standard in your dealings with me than I have used in my dealings with others. I, I don't, there is no other thought that makes me want to be more merciful to others than this. I know my sin. I want to be measured by the most merciful standard allowable. And so, therefore, I must use that very supremely merciful standard in my dealings with my fellow believers. I'll never forget a counseling case I had a little over five years ago. A couple who had been married for 40 years sat in my office, the husband seeking forgiveness for what were, no doubt, very serious transgressions. But the wife just couldn't bring herself to do it. And I understood that. These, were, these things take time. These were serious offenses. So I continued to pray for the both of them, continued to counsel with them for several months, almost a year. And throughout that time, I would try to gently bring this principle to bear. I, I took them to this very text in Matthew 18 and, and said, you know, consider how great a debt that you have been forgiven and let that loose the, the strings of your heart so that you could give that grace to your husband. Consider what Jesus says will happen if you can't bring yourself to that level of forgiveness. And I'll never forget it. After nearly a year of pleading and seeking to apply the gospel, she looked at me and said, I would rather go to hell than to forgive him. And I looked back at her, trying to hold back the tears, and said, you will. You will. And you think about it, that was several years ago. I haven't heard from her in years. It may very well be that she is with the torturers already. I pray not. I pray that there was repentance. But Jesus says the same thing to you. If you would rather go to hell than to forgive the transgression of the one who earnestly and sincerely seeks your forgiveness, you will. Look at it. Verse 35, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you. James 2.13, a verse you can't forget, a verse you ought to write on your heart. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. I don't want that for you. You say, 
Okay, fine. I, I guess I have to forgive him then. I mean, I don't want to go to hell, uh, so I'll forgive, but I won't forget. If that's your attitude, don't miss the last three words of the parable. Look again at verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Jesus does not say, if each of you does not begrudgingly utter the words, I forgive you. He doesn't say, if each of you leaves the underlying problem unresolved and lies to yourself that you've let it go, but then you never talk to that person again. Hey, this is great. You know, I go to second service, I sit over here. They go to first service, they sit over there. No. The only forgiveness that exists The only forgiveness that is worthy of the name is forgiveness that is from the heart. A genuine, warm forgiveness that relentlessly pursues the full restoration of the relationship, that buries the offense in the depths of the sea, that casts all their sins behind your back so that you'll remember them no more. And that doesn't mean that you suffer amnesia. There are often consequences that remain even after sin is forgiven. Nathan tells David, you are the man. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan says, your sins are forgiven. You won't die, but the child will die. There are consequences to even forgiven sin. And so you may be physically able to remember the offense, and there may need to be steps taken so that things aren't Exactly the same, but that's not because you're constantly bringing it to bear on the relationship. It's not because there is enmity or contention in your heart. You know, you might even be able to forget it. Even better. I mean, look, one of my, the greatest things that happened to me ever is when I go to somebody and say, brother, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. And they say, when did you do that? And you think, oh, the gospel's at work in him. Thank you, you know. That's the kind of disposition you want to cultivate, one that goes out of the way to forget offenses that have been committed against you. I don't have space in my brain to hold on to the wrongs. It's too full with all of the wonderful mercies that I receive from God and my fellow believers. That's the way the Scripture speaks. Proverbs 19.11, it's to a man's glory to overlook a transgression. And so, friends, ask yourselves, Does your heart pulse with that kind of forgiving spirit, with that kind of eager disposition to forgive a repentant brother or sister? Some of you in this room have to answer no to that question. And if so, that can mean one of two things. In the first place, it can mean just what we've spoken about, that you've never received that forgiveness for your own sins, that for all your professions and protestations of faith, all the years you've attended church, All the years you've called yourself a Christian, your settled unwillingness to forgive reveals a heart of stone. It hasn't ever been transformed into a heart of flesh. To hold on to grudges, to nurse bitterness, to brood in resentment, those are evidences of a natural human heart untouched by the grace of God and devoid of the divine life of regeneration. For one's who propose to be forgiven so much, that unforgiveness in your heart can be evidence that you're not a Christian at all. But of course, the remedy for that is to look upon Christ, to look upon the cross and see in that cross 
how unspeakably offensive your sin is to a holy God. The sin is so abhorrent to God's nature and character that He must punish it with the utmost severity. But it's also to see in that cross the great love of God demonstrated to you that He should give His only Son, His innocent Son, His righteous Son, to bear in His own person the full measure of the divine wrath against the very sins that you've committed. It is to see the Son of God laying aside the glory of heaven to take on human flesh. It is to see the author of life humbly submitting himself to death, the most shameful kind of death, in order to pay the incalculable 10,000-talent debt that your sins deserve but which you could never repay. And in seeing him there, in beholding the awful payment that your sin demanded, it is to mourn over your wretchedness and to cry out to God in repentance to beg His forgiveness on the basis of that perfect sacrifice. Friend, if you have never truly turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, if you've never tasted the sweetness of divine forgiveness such that it's given you a new heart of forgiveness, I plead with you to repent and believe this morning. But for those of you who do know the sweet taste of God's forgiveness and yet who struggle with an unforgiving disposition, it may not be that you're unregenerate. It may be that you've lost your grasp on the enormity of God's forgiveness of you. That the spiritual sight of the glory of Jesus has become clouded in the eyes of your heart. You're distracted from how amazing God's grace is, and you're failing to bring the gospel of Christ fully to bear on your life. And the remedy for that is verses 23 to 27. It's to look to Christ afresh It is to behold the loveliness of the triune God who forgives sin so lavishly, so freely, so enduringly. And it is to have the heart warmed by the sight of that loveliness so that all hardness of heart is melted away so that we can forgive our brothers and sisters from the heart. And to my fellow Christians who are sinning against God by withholding forgiveness from others, Look to Christ again and again and again. See in Him so much greater of a satisfaction than the false pleasure that is promised by holding on to grudges. And repent. Be freed to open your heart in forgiveness to your brothers and sisters in Christ and be reconciled to them. If we grasp this principle, how the church would be unified how marriages would be strengthened, how families would be reconciled, how strong our love to one another would grow, how strong we would grow to endure the hardship and the persecution that surely is coming to us in this generation. This is the cornerstone. If we can gain a right apprehension of the magnitude of our own sin and the magnitude of the forgiveness that we have been freely granted, we would be the most difficult people in the world to offend. And so rejoice that your debt has been canceled, and then rejoice to cancel the debts of others. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your grace to us in Christ, and we pray that You would give still more grace to cause us to walk in a manner worthy of that. Help us 
to, to live Christ-like, to live godly in the present age by being easy people, by being forgiving people. And especially as we turn to your table now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.